Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This morning, we are going to be considering the wonders of the eternal Son of the eternal Father from several angles as Paul presents them. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and it was a time where we were taught of and took pride in uh, what we were called as the melting pot uh, America. And of course, back then, it meant that we welcomed people from all backgrounds, from all nations, from all circumstances. That was then. This is now. Multiculturalism has gone badly astray, and tolerance has totally lost its moorings and become intolerance, that is, of any view that claims alone to be true to the exclusion of all others. In this day, you are intolerant if you do not acknowledge all views as equally valid. Of course, in such an environment, what happens to Christianity? Christianity appears to be the most intolerant of beliefs. And the claim of our own Lord who said that no one can come to the Father but by me is just simply unacceptable in our world. Christianity is labeled more and more today intolerant because it maintains an exclusive truth that in no way denigrates any person on the earth, but yet insists that Jesus alone is the way to the truth about and the life in God, the way, the truth, and the life, which things apart from him cannot be known or had. And we proclaim that boldly, without hesitation, in a world that calls that intolerant. This Jesus is the one whom we are going to exalt and study this morning in Colossians 1. The text we're going to study uh, was no doubt written by Paul to combat what has come to be known in our day as the Colossian heresy. In other words, false teachings about Jesus Christ uh, that came at it from different angles, but, and we don't really know exactly what all of them were, but we can tell from the things that Paul proclaims about Jesus some of what maybe they were challenging and questioning and doubting. So this was written against heresies, but probably not for that reason alone. In his work on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis said this, and I agree with him, a person can't always be defending the truth. There must be a time when we simply feed on it. And I say amen. And I would add, there must be a time when we alone revel in it, bask in it, are wonderfully encouraged and uplifted by it. And this is my goal for today. 
I'm not standing here this morning with an intention to combat the many heresies that abound, the many falsehoods that abound in our culture and in our world today. My primary goal through this word is that we would be so unlifted into the light that is Jesus Christ our Lord. We are encouraged in the New Testament to see that the entire of scriptures, Old and New Testament, are really about Jesus. Meeting the two men on the way to Emmaus one day, Jesus, recorded in Luke 24, began with Moses and the prophets, which is a phrase that sums up the whole of the Old Testament. He began with Moses and the prophets to reveal and explain himself to them. Earlier, he excoriated the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, because they thought that in the scriptures they would find life, but he told them, these are they which speak of me. And then remember Philip, encountering that eunuch from Ethiopia. What did he do? Well, he explained Jesus from Isaiah. All of Scripture, our Bible, is about Jesus. And so since being a Christian is first and foremost about Jesus the Christ, it really gives me great delight this morning to proclaim the supreme excellencies of our Lord, to remind you all of them, for I know you're familiar with this passage, as they are revealed by the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul. We will be considering briefly his full preeminence as shown in his relationship first to God, and then his relationship to creation, and thirdly, his relationship to the new creation. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Follow me as I read those verses. I'm reading from the New American Standard. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have everything, come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Allow me to pray. Lord Jesus, we are here for no other reason than because of you. In eternity past, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.4, we were chosen in you. What an amazing thought. We weren't in existence. The universe wasn't in existence. And yet in the mind and the purpose of the Godhead, we were already in Christ. I thank you, Lord, that in time, 
That effective call came to each one of us who has believed. So that the moment before we were unbelieving, but then we believed and could not but believe the truth that was open to us. I thank you that now we are living a life directed by your spirit, indwelt by your spirit, intended for your glory. And so I pray that as we seek to magnify you this morning, our Lord, our God, our Savior, through the words that the Spirit gave to Paul in Colossians, I pray that you would be glorified and we, your people, would be edified. In Christ's name, amen. What a Savior we have in Jesus. I'm going to be pointing out uh, 14 points that Paul brings up in this passage. I have never had 14 points in one message before in my life. So you prayer warriors out there, be praying silently that I get through this. We begin with our first point in verse 15. The phrase, the image of the invisible God. Now, I suspect when most of us hear that, our minds rush back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we remember distinctly how we, humanity, were made. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But don't go too far with that, because that sense of image is not going to help us understand the sense of image here in Colossians Chapter 1. The first use of image, humans were created in ways to resemble aspects of and to have relationship with God. But the second use of image is speaking about Jesus, who is God and who is the creator, as Paul will shortly make clear in this list of points. So perhaps the next word, invisible, gives us a better clue. Jesus' image-bearing does not merely resemble, but actually reveals the God who is, to human eyes, invisible. Like the Father, the Eternal Son existed as infinite spirit without visible form. But in the Incarnation... When Jesus took upon himself humanity, he did so in such an unprecedented way as to make God's nature and will preeminently known. We who have made or have been made in God's image cannot manifest the invisible God in all the fullness of his glory. We cannot do that. But with Jesus... It is true as he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Or consider 1 John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. And this aspect of Jesus is so necessary upon the earth. Because we read in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
So while you and I have been made in the image of God, Jesus is the very image of God, projected onto the human canvas of the incarnation. We could not have a more perfect revelation of the living God than is presented to us in his Son through the incarnation, Jesus Christ. Praise him forever. Moving on in verse 15 to the second point. We read that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this has confused many, and it's been debated back and forth, and it's been defended in its true meaning. But quite obviously, uh, this does not mean that Jesus was the first person created or born. A mistake that comes from interpreting firstborn in modern English rather than according to biblical language. We must always grapple with the Bible's message in the Bible's context before we bring it up to our day, whatever day that happens to be. For some, like the JWs, misunderstanding this has been a cause for denying the deity of Jesus and thinking of him as some very high but yet created being. However, in the Old Testament, both Israel and David were called the firstborn. Both, however, referring to status and not temporal priority. After all, Israel came long after Adam and Eve and long after Abraham, and David was the last of his many brothers. For Jesus as eternal God to be the firstborn of creation Something non-temporal is meant. Paul uses this phrase in its Old Testament sense of priority, status, dignity, rank, and inheritance, heirship. So much to say that it's being used metaphorically rather than temporally. It's not about Jesus' time, but about his place over all that is created. In other words, over all that is not God. Hebrews 1, chapter 2, captures the meaning, I think, particularly when it comes to the idea of an heir, when it says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That is the status of a firstborn in the Bible, using biblical language. So Jesus, we learn, is preeminent revealer of God. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the preeminent revealer, and he is infinitely above and heir of all that is created and all that is not God. So we move on to the next in verse 16. Begins with the third point, with the word for. Always look at prepositions that refer back to something. And this is one of them. For, indicating that Paul is about to give a reason. You could put the word because there. For this great status and dignity of Jesus over all and heir of all that is created. And the reason is 
because in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So what is Paul doing? Well, he is clarifying, he's filling out the meaning of the word he chose to use, firstborn. He explains why it has to do with status, with dignity, with inheritance. Now, our Bibles vary a lot in this verse. The biblical Greek has in him, though many of our translations have something like by him or through him, which, by the way, a little bit later, Paul will actually say, but the actual preposition used here means in. Very generally, Paul is telling us that all of creation occurred in Jesus, in reference to Jesus, in the sphere of the Lord. Nothing was created outside of Jesus. Nothing exists outside of Jesus. That's basically what Paul is saying right now. He is the one in whom creation occurred. In the same way that in the New Testament, we are taught that new creation occurs in him. We are taught that our salvation is in Christ over and over and over again. These ideas mean that we are united in a very special way to the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore all of the blessings of salvation become ours through him by being connected in him. Similarly, everything was made in reference to Jesus and does not exist apart from him. In a way, less than savingly, all of creation is united to its creator and, as we will see, to its sustainer. Paul will mention that in verse 17. Now, as I reflect on the status of our culture, most people, in their spiritual blindness, live as if their world exists mostly in reference to their own independent selves. No wonder they gladly exchange a creator God for a God of the survival of the fittest evolution. What a rude awakening. It will be on the last day when the ultimate self-disclosure of Jesus is made and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus is Lord. Verse 15 and 16 both use the word all. And here, Paul lets us know just how comprehensive this all really is. Again, the language is strictly biblical. It's found elsewhere in the scriptures. And so that we must allow scripture to interpret scripture and not modern language. He says, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible... Basically, those are biblical ways of summing up everything other than God himself. In other words, Paul is saying that nothing that has come into being, and God has always been, did so outside of or apart from Christ. Nothing. But what about the thrones and the dominions and the rulers and the authorities? In Paul's language, these all point to spiritual and not human powers 
and therefore they fill out the previous idea of in the heavenlies. What's in the heavenlies? Well, this is what's in the heavenlies. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are in the heavenlies. Now, this becomes important when we consider how often people are encouraged to turn to so-called spiritual forces outside themselves. What we fail to realize is that these are merely creatures like us who, as 1 Peter 3.22 tells us, have been through Christ's victory of the resurrection subjected to him. Why not worship the highest? Which is what we do. To turn to them, to depend on them, is to miss the creator and worship the creature, the creation. Even, I would say, the temptation to depend upon angels, I'm talking about the good angels in the presence of God, even the temptation to depend upon angels is discouraged by this truth. We are not to lower our sights from the highest they can see, which is Christ, to a fellow creature, to an angel. Many who have written volumes about angels have actually written far more than is revealed. They make good books, but the Bible's better. It tells us exactly what we need to know. And I could boil it down to this. What we do know is that angels, or these spirits, are either ministers of evil as Satan's minions, or they are ministers of God for our good, the good of believers, according to Hebrews 1.14. But the fact is, they are creatures just like us, and cannot compare to the one in whom they and we and all things have been created. And they should never be elevated. And yet they are in our world. But let not us do the same. To him be praise and worship and honor alone. With the fourth and fifth points, Paul moves from in him, and this is why this preposition differs in the Greek than these two, to through him and for him. At the end of verse 16, he says, All things have been created through him and for him. And my thought is that these two new ideas, both using prepositions through and for, give more meaning to what it means that all creation is created in him. What does it mean for all creation to be created in reference to Jesus? Well, With point four, the first says through or by, depending on your translation. It affirms that Jesus was the agent through whom God created all things that came into being. And Paul expects that we should marvel, truly marvel at the divine power that was exercised, that belongs to Jesus the only power worthy of our trust and our devotion and of our confidence, the power that made this world, the power through which it came into existence. Our world is often fascinated 
with the origin of the universe. But apart from, apart from Christ, they are left to a science which no longer, though it once did, factors in God. And therefore, it is clueless. Because it can only deal with phenomena and not causation. In its effort to grasp causation, it tends, ends up with a religion of materialism. It makes matter the eternal God. Which, by the way, is pantheism, though people don't even realize it. Or it makes some inexplicable, spontaneous combustion of life ex nihilo, out of nothing, be the reason and causation of the universe. And why are such absurdities accepted? Well, one reason we've already addressed, and that is 2 Corinthians 4, 4, when the prince of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see. When you start to get really frustrated and you start to pull your hair out, how can people even think like that, you say to yourself? That's the answer, folks. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is the answer, why the lost think the way they do. As irrational as it seems at many times, that is the reason. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. And sadly, in their blindness, many scientists are awed by the many aspects of the universe they study. How could they not be? What we know of the expanse of our universe boggles the mind, goes beyond anything we can imagine. The speed by which some of its elements, like light, can move Yet scientists in the secular world have no rational explanation for it and must concoct up nonsense. Moreover, and this could begin to hit closer, a little bit closer to home, how can folks think that the position of the stars or the month of your birth or the conditions of your environment, or the relative status of your life can have any real significance or control in the face of the omnipotent power of our Lord and Savior. For Paul tells us, for us as believers, it's not stars or months or circumstances. He tells us that this same person is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There is the confidence that we have of the power of creation and over us and over our every moment. Believers should realize, however, that attributing creation to the one true God of the Bible is not without its problems. If this is his world, it has often be asked, been asked, why is there so much evil and destruction and grief? And I see some of you hopeful that I'm going to answer that. I'm not. That's not what this message is about. But this is where inspired revelation must come in and be our guide and our explanation for all things. 
Unlike the blinded, we confess with Paul, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made. And we do that without denying the presence of evil. But as Paul will say later, the last part of this wonderful list of the preeminent aspects of Christ, as Paul will say, God in Christ has a plan and has fully provided a solution to the evil that will result in his glory. Does any of us understand exactly how that will take place? No. We will see it and bask in it when it does. But we are given that assurance now. There are some things Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that belong to the Lord and other things that are revealed to us and to our children, and we need to be happy with that. In fact, there is so much revealed to us that I can spend a lifetime in that and have so far and will for the rest of my days. But the things that he tells us are designed to give us every bit of confidence in what we do not fully understand. Point five, the second Preposition four speaks to the goal. We have the agent, we have the sphere, the agent, and now the goal of creation. I think Paul is here transporting us from now into the time to come. It's called eschatology, the end of all things, when God's grand plan is finally consummated to his glory. Everything is going his way, you know. Everything is going as he plans. Everything is going to be consummated just as God intended it in eternity past, and it will redound to his glory forever and ever and ever. Ephesians 1.10 speaks of the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Again, it's this idea of for the goal of creation. Revelation 22.13, you'll remember, reminds us not only that Jesus is the Alpha, but he's also the Omega, the last, and everything in between. What we call history is controlled by Jesus. It's, as you've probably heard, his story. It's running, it's progression, it's end, all in his pierced hands as he is at the helm of it all. And despite the apparent randomness or unconnectedness of so many events, our Redeemer is heading this ship towards its intended and certain goal, which Paul tells us is found in him. He is the goal, created for him amazing truth. This is the God you and I worship. This is the God who is our Savior. This is the God who by His Spirit indwells us. What a God. Verse 17a, we come to the sixth preeminence of Jesus. He is before all things. This is likely a temporal marker which transports us from eternity past now back into time, before time, into pre-existence. Jesus, being only in his 30s, confounded the Pharisees by telling them, before Abraham was, I am. In prayer before the disciples in John chapter 17, 
He said, the glory which I had with you, Father, before the world was. Now, I can't fault the Pharisees and the disciples if their understanding was deficient. Because I know if we are honest with ourselves as space-time creatures, uh, grasping eternity is not within our skill set. I think our best response is just be awed at our God. Awed at our eternal Lord, who for the joy set before him came into time to endure the cross for you and me. And now coming back to time in the seventh point, Verse 17b, regarding Jesus, in him all things hold together. I, I have to chuckle every time I hear the contemporary buzzword, sustainability. The reason I chuckle is if anything we do or can build or can have can be sustained apart from Jesus. He sustains all, and, and we take credit. It's him who holds all things together. The very building blocks of our world, the atoms, are still a mystery to scientists as to their cohesion. They shouldn't hold together. Why do they? Well, we don't know. By all rights, they should explode. Yet they do cohere and they give stability to our world, to everything. But it's still scientifically inexplicable. If you wonder why one, why one day the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth when its works will be burned up, 2 Peter 3.10, God is not going to need some sophisticated weapon to do this, like everybody thinks. He only needs to stop holding the atoms together and the world will implode. We're so foolish to think that God needs chariots. He didn't need them in the Old Testament. He doesn't need nukes in the New. He is holding all things together. And the moment he should stop that, what happens to all things? <laughs> they fall apart. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself a, a, a moment, but uh, it has been said that Jesus alone is why the universe is a cosmos and not a chaos. A cosmos and not a chaos. That's what we would have if he were not holding all things together. Verse 18 moves from Jesus as God being above all creation to his preeminent relation to the new creation. From the cosmos to the church, now Jesus goes, or Paul goes. The eighth supremacy of Jesus is that he is also the head of the body, the church. That's you and I. In 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about believers being various members of the parts, and he says, we're not all eyes, we're not all feet, we're not all hands. Do you know what member in that list is not mentioned? Head. He does not use the head as an illustration. That role is reserved uniquely for Jesus, who as head rules and directs all the other parts, all the other members. He is unique and distinct from, and yet we are united to, the head. Only Jesus can be thought of that way. He is the head, the conception of our Lord over his people. As Jesus energizes and causes creation to cohere, so in the body, the church, Jesus brings diverse members 
together to function according to the gifts as he distributes them so that in the end the church will indeed be spotless. A wonderful day that will be. I'm pretty sure we're not there yet. The ninth preeminence of Jesus in verse 18 is he is the beginning. The Greek word arche, from which we get words like hierarchy and patriarch, is used in the Bible both of time and of status. Here, the time or temporal seems to have precedence. Jesus foreordained, chose, called, established, and founded the church, even as Ephesians 1.4 says God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Folks, when we think of church, before our minds rush to pastors, elders, congregations, our first thoughts with Paul should be about Jesus, who creates, sustains, equips, and perfects all those whom he places in it. He began it, he rules it, and he is about perfecting it, which he will do one day. Now next, we will see that his resurrection is what brought about this church. With the tenth supremacy of Jesus, we encounter the word firstborn again, but in a different relation. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The primary meaning is likely temporal, but it also points ahead, commenting on Jesus' status in the new creation. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Of course, he is the first to be raised eternally from death a truth that lies at the very heart of Christianity without which there is no hope and without which we are pitiable fools for believing it. Those are Paul's words, paraphrased. And this is our certain hope and final of final bodily resurrection as well. And for that reason, Jesus stands at the gate, eschatologically, at the gate of the new heaven and the new earth as the firstborn from the dead, the first to be raised eternally, and as such, he is the gate holder to the new heaven and the new earth. The eleventh above all truth of Jesus is that so that he might come to have first place in everything, 18c. The goal of Jesus being the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, is that he would have primacy over everything that is. Jesus above all. Far from the scriptures being primarily about us, as we so often think, they point us in the direction of the Godhead's true intent and revelation, Jesus. The phrase, might come to have, as Paul uses it, might have in view the same idea that Hebrews 2.8 does when it says that currently, now we do not see all things subjected to him. Not until death is finally abolished will this be true. But our verse expresses the final intention of God, that he might come to have first place in everything. It has often been said that if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And I agree with that. And that is going to be the fact of the end when all things are consummated. Verse 19 picks up with the 12th characteristic, an area addressed also back in verse 15, Christ's relation to God, his preeminence in that way. Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In the original, the Father's is missing. 
All the fullness is the actual subject of the sentence. Father is certainly implied, but Paul actually leaves it out because his focus is really on Jesus. Parallel to what he will say later in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In their quest for fullness of life, people search everywhere, but they never search in the place where it alone can be found, in Jesus. Oh, that we who are his might always strive to know better and better the fullness of Christ in our own lives. This statement and the one in chapter 2 stand as some of the clearest declarations of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. Paul is saying that the totality of God resides in Jesus, which can only be if Jesus is God, because nothing created can contain God. But Jesus does. He is uncreated. Helps me understand a little bit better. It gives a little more clarity to the idea of the temple being torn down and raised up in three days. Jesus himself replaces and infinitely exceeds the Old Testament temple as a place of God's dwelling. A place in the Old Testament that never knew the fullness of God as it is shown and as it dwells in Jesus. And as Jesus dwells in all believers, and they dwell in him, we are continually tabernacled in the Lord. Wherever we go, at every moment, what an unparalleled privilege is ours. And because of the fullness of deity that resides in Jesus, and because he resides in us, Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he has all the fullness. The Father draws his people to Jesus, and Jesus saves forever without losing a one, he says in John 6, and he will raise them up. To the glory of the Father. Hallelujah. Verse 20 brings us to the 13th preeminence of Jesus, which has to do with reconciliation, both cosmic and personal, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. What does reconciliation bring to mind if not a rupture of relationship, a rift, which in this case was initiated by Adam's fall, casting both creation and humanity into a state of needing reconciliation, which neither humanity nor creation could obtain themselves, resulting in both groaning until it happens. So as we learn throughout the New Testament, this was a rift having only one guilty side and one offended party, God. Humanity is the guilty, God the offended. Yet glory to God, Christ became the reconciler, And through no other means than his incarnational death, the God-man dying to reconcile fallen humanity. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul touches again on the idea of all things in relation to reconciliation. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Against the unbiblical idea that such verses, verses teach universal salvation... This can only mean world broadly rather than exhaustively because we know in the Bible it still teaches us about hell. There is a hell, and it will be populated. Tied closely with this is the 14th and final supremacy of Jesus. 
Verse 20b, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth are things in heaven. There it is again, the, uh, the inclusiveness of it all. The peace mentioned naturally flows from reconciliation. It's the only way to get there. You must be reconciled to God. People hope and dream about peace on the earth, and century upon century upon century of, of taking stabs at it cannot achieve it. They do not realize that it is Satan's goal and a characteristic of fallen sinfulness that contention, envy, abuse, and hatred will prevail. That's just how it is in this fallen world. But Christ has made, is making, and one day will consummate peace over all things in the heaven and the earth. And of course, that time is when the new heaven and the new earth will merge together. There's an already not yet about this peace. For now, all those who are his have peace with God. You have that today. And we are to strive to maintain unity through the bond of peace with one another. And ultimately, we will one day have total peace in all of life with everyone and everything in all things in the age to come. Well, there you have it. Our Lord Jesus is above all in every way. I could have spent this time on just one of them, but that would have taken 14 messages. The king on David's throne, who also inexplicably to the Old Testament believers is mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace, something only makes sense once you get the New Testament. Surely even as Paul, in Paul's day, that this presentation of the exalted Jesus above all, this high Christology that we are given in Colossians, is the answer to all of the mistakes, all of the errors, all of the falsehoods in our world. Surely Christ above all and in all answers the human dilemma. Yet I want to come back to C.S. Lewis's very valid point because my desire this morning is that we who believe feed ourselves on these truths for our own well-being, for our own growth in the faith. Surely Paul's intention is that believers would rest in nothing and no one else but Jesus at all times. And that he is and has accomplished and will one day unquestionably accomplish all his good purposes and we are included in them. Also, undoubtedly, the Spirit intends that from an appreciation of who Jesus is, we should most readily leap into worship of Him in all things, the worship with our minds, with our hearts, with our strength, in our song, and in our daily affairs of life, and in our relationships with one another. All of our life when we consider who he is and that we belong to him and he indwells us, should be one characterized by worship in some form or another. To him be glory and honor and praise forever. Jesus is our worthy Lord, worthy to take our sins upon himself, worthy to be raised from the dead, worthy one day to raise us up bodily, worthy to give eternal life and restore us to God, worthy to restore all creation, worthy of all honor and glory and praise, both now 
and into eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, what a pleasure to bask in the light that is you, to have these truths given to us, which had they not been revealed to us by the Spirit through the Apostle Paul, we would not know. We would be in darkness. But because we know you, we have been transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. Lord, these 14 qualities can't begin to scratch the surface of your wonder. It is too high for us in this given life. But oh, how we thank you for what you have given to us to understand. Lord, may these truths penetrate to our very depths of our souls and into the very practicality of our lives each and every day that we would live unto the glory of the preeminent one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.